Hey, it's Andy from Talking to Teens. It would mean the world to us if you could leave us a five-star review. Reviews on Apple and Spotify help other parents find the show, and that helps us keep the lights on. Thanks for being a listener, and here's the show. You're listening to Talking to Teens, where we speak with leading experts from a variety of disciplines about the art and science of parenting teenagers. I'm your host, Andy Earle. We're here today with Pete Davis, the author of the new book, Dedicated, The Case for Commitment in an Age of Infinite Browsing. Pete is the co-founder of the Democracy Policy Network, a state policy organization focused on raising up ideas that deepen democracy. In 2015, he co-founded Getaway, a company that provides simple, unplugged escapes to tiny cabins outside of major cities. And his Harvard Law School graduation speech, A Counterculture of Commitment, has been viewed more than 30 million times. Pete is here to talk to us about commitment. Today's teenagers live in a world of browsing and of keeping our options open. And today's technologies are only encouraging us to spend more time in what Pete calls infinite browsing mode. As parents and educators and people who care about teenagers, we need to teach them how to commit. We need to inspire our teens to dedicate themselves to something bigger than themselves. We need our teenagers to care. But how do we teach them to do that? We're going to talk about the different kinds of commitments, the different ways that teenagers can commit, and we're going to talk about the four specific things parents can do to help encourage teenagers to find something they care about and commit to it. In this episode, we're going to talk about how to overcome the obstacles and raise teens who are dedicated to something bigger than themselves. Pete, thank you so much for coming on the show today to speak with us. The book is called Dedicated, The Case for Making Commitment in an Age of Infinite Browsing. And this kind of seems like it was inspired by a speech that you gave that's been viewed more than 30 million times, by the way, called A Counterculture of Commitment. But how did that start? And uh, how did you get interested in this topic in the first place? You know, as I was growing up, I kept getting this message in school. And in other venues where older people were talking to me, which was the message was keep your options open, you know, choose a job that will help you get future jobs. Don't get tied down to a person or a place you love because you never know what's around the corner. Don't speak too much about what you believe in online. It might hurt your career down the road. Uh, the most important thing is to always keep your options open. But the thing that was weird was that I kept looking at people that I respected, you know, heroes that I looked up to. And they were the ones who totally ignored that advice. Mm -hmm. They were people who dived in and made commitments to particular yep. things. 
uh, you know, it was the friend who decided to go all in on Brazilian jiu-jitsu or the the person from the town that said, you know what, I'm going to become a rabbi or the person who moved back to their hometown or put down roots in a neighborhood and got involved in civic life. Um, they were the ones that were having the most impact, that were earning the most respect, that were experiencing the most joy and serenity. And so I gave the speech and the speech eventually turned into this book because I wanted to rectify that difference that even though we're told to keep all of our options open, the thing that our world needs most right now and the thing that you know each of us need most is to dive in and make commitments to particular things. Yeah. And you have uh, a great story in here about taking piano lessons from Mrs. Gatley and uh, <laughs> talking about the 12 years that you spent in the Gatley verse. Why was um, taking piano lessons uh, an example of the, this type of commitment? Well, you know, when you're growing up, you usually have teachers or coaches that last you know, one year, maybe two years right. at the most, yeah. you know, in elementary school, you have a different teacher every grade when you, you know, maybe in high school, you get a coach for three years. That's the largest amount you usually get. Often you're just kind of passing through a class for a semester or something. Yeah. And what was really special about piano lessons is they were over 13 years. You know, Miss Gatley had me from five to 18 and there's, a type of lesson that you cannot learn, many types of lessons that you cannot learn yeah. over one year. You need to learn them over a long period of time. I talk about some of the experiences of being part of these piano lessons. You know, I started young and I saw the older kids in Miss Gatley's classes do much better than me. And then I got to experience, oh gosh, I wish I could play like that. And then learning how to play like that and have the younger kids looking up yeah. to us. That's a real special experience that it teaches you something. I had a person who saw me grow up and was able to notice patterns about me and had the kind of authority to go deeper in her moral education because um, she knew me very well. Um, and just the, you know, the, the learning of a craft skill over time that, you know, sometimes you can't learn everything you need to know about something in a year. It takes 10 years to really master craft. Um, and I don't even feel like I've mastered piano, you know, I, I to, you know, get to, above water on piano to be able to just kind of like play um, intermediary songs, but, you know, to really master it another 20 years maybe. But, um, but that ability to see that if you stick with something, you become part of a community, you have a deep impact, you feel a sense of purpose. You know, I feel like a person who's part of the world of music because I yeah. learned how to play piano. Um, and you get to feel the joys that only come at the end of a long haul. Yeah, it's funny. We had a guest on the show who studies music and uh, music education in children. And she specifically had said that studies show there's a lot of benefit to kids from studying music, but it really, um, in order to get the full benefit, they have to play the same instrument for at least five years. And if they switch, you know, from one instrument to another to another and play five different instruments for a year each, nowhere near the same level of benefit because you don't get the depth that you get from sticking with the same thing for such a long time. Yeah, because in the end, it's not about the instrument. It doesn't matter what you know, instrument it is. That's what Miss Gatley always exactly. said, too. You know, yeah. it's not about piano here. You know, that's not the most important thing. You have to kind of 
say that it's about that because that's the kind of magical craft that pulls you in. But in the end, it's about the virtues that you develop yeah. while trying to master a craft. You develop the virtues of patience. You develop the virtues of uh, subsuming yourself in a community larger than yourself. You know, uh, Matthew Crawford in his wonderful book, uh, Shop Class as Soul Craft, uh, which he writes about learning crafts, he says, you learn this lesson of being able to take feedback from something that is objectively real outside of yourself. So, so much of a teen's life or a kid's life is people giving them feedback, you know, yeah. someone telling them they're doing something wrong. But what's amazing about craft work and especially long-term engagement with a craft is the craft itself gives you feedback. You know if you played that well. You know if the ball won in the hoop. You know if the audience laughs at your joke. <laughs> um, and, and then the good coach yep. doesn't become – they don't get you turning to the coach. They don't get you shooting the shot and then looking at your coach and being like, did I do good? Did I do no, right. the, co the good coach will say, go look at the basket mm -hmm. and see if it went in the basket or not. Um, and the good piano teacher will say, well, did you hit the right notes? Did you feel like that went well? Do you feel emotionally? And like when you get to the higher levels, do you feel emotionally moved by the piece you just played? Yeah. And so that's another lesson you learn. And this is all, this sounds like negative, uh, you know, you got to do better. You got to be patient, but there's positive sides to this too. The joy of mastering a song that sounded great miss gatley used to play the song first when you got a new song sometimes yeah. and you'd be like wow that sounds good you're telling me i'm gonna be able to play that song later this year and then she's like well let's get take it one one measure at a time and see what we can do and then you eventually play it and that's an amazing feeling bring up another point though uh, a little bit later here on page 27 you're talking about how during your freshman year of college there are many people who joined the college versions of whatever they were doing in high school if they played orchestra in high school they signed up for the orchestra if they're a math whiz they took math classes then in the summer after freshman year there's this big wave where everyone quits whatever that thing was <laughs> or whatever um and so i thought that was really interesting this like there was this commitment uh, to this thing in high school, but then they, you start getting exposed to more things and maybe you want to try something different and maybe you realize this wasn't the thing for you or something like that. Yeah, you know, I, I wanted at the beginning of the book to give browsing its due because, you know, the book is set up as, you know, we're stuck in infinite browsing mode. We're always jumping from thing to thing. We're always not picking a movie. We're remaining in the hallway of life or the menu screen of life. Yeah. Um, and my case in this book is it's the case for commitment. Um, you know, pick a darn movie, uh, choose a room off the hallway. But I wanted to give browsing its due because I didn't want this book to be a dogmatic thing, like never quit anything. Yeah. I wanted to say it's very important to have parts of your life where you're browsing. And I tell that story to talk about the joy of freshman year of college or for those who don't go to college, the joy of your first year out of your house, you know, out in some adventure, you know, in some part of the world. And um, and uh, I wanted to say, you know, one of the pleasures of browsing periods of our life is flexibility, the ability and then and you know, the ability to be chill about things, you know, not beat yourself up over needing to live up to all your inherited commitments that you took on when you were five. And with flexibility comes another pleasure of browsing, which is the search for authenticity. Yeah. 
when you get to browse around and explore the hallway of life, what you're doing is you're trying to find your authentic self. You're trying to find what feels like something that is a part of you, what speaks to you, what causes the song of your heart to seem louder when you're around it. And that, you know, that comes with a lot of adventure and a lot of uh, novelty, you know, the joy of experiencing new things. But the point of the book is that these pleasures eventually are haunted by pains. You know, if you jump from thing to thing forever, I'm saying good to jump from thing to thing at browsing periods yeah. of your life. But if you jump to thing from thing to, from thing, to thing forever, you eventually will have choice paralysis and not be able to choose anything. Yeah. If you always are searching for the perfect thing that fits your perfect authentic self, you're eventually going to be spiritually isolated because nothing will fit your perfect self. You always have to join something that's slightly imperfect, that is kind of messy. That's what joining up with other people and something bigger than yourself yeah. is. So if you're always so particular about this must be my exact thing, that won't work. And if you never join up with something bigger than yourself, if you never make a commitment to a person or a place or a community or an institution or a cause or a craft, you will miss out on the deepest novelties of all, which are the novelties at the end of long hauls. You know, being five years into something, mastering a craft, celebrating your 10th anniversary, becoming an elder in your community. All of these only come from committing to something. So if you're always fearing missing out because of commitments, part of the, this book is shaking you to say you should fear missing out on the long term things that, you know, that come with commitments, not just on the hot new thing that you're worried your commitments threaten. I think part of it, there's this, there's this notion that we need to like find our passion and something that totally is the perfect thing for us and inspires us. And then once we find that, we are really going to go for it. Um, and, but we just haven't quite found it yet. And you kind of point out in this book and you talk about some sociologists who uh, study this and I thought it was really interesting that a lot of times it kind of works the opposite way. It's not that we get passionate about something first and then commit to it. It's that we just kind of commit to something. We just try something out and we just say, yeah, I'm going to go for it. And then over time, we develop the passion for it or that sort of, as we get more and more committed in the thing, uh, the passion just emerges. Yeah. You know, it's, we all, we're kind of trained by consumer society to think, you know, the Burger King motto, have it your yeah. way. You know, it's, um, it's, uh, you you the, the the big moment is the original choice you know decide what you want decide it know it perfectly make the decision of the exact thing that you want customized to exactly you and then you will be satisfied you know have it your way but that's not usually how things work on the most important things you know, it's not totally random. I'm not saying you'll be passionate about anything if you were randomly assigned to something. <laughs> right. You know, use a little bit of will yeah. to decide what you kind of like more you'll than something else. You'll be drawn to some things more than others. And yeah, yeah obviously. But, yeah, but my whole message is if you're kind of drawn to something. Try it out. Double down on yeah. it. You know, try it out. You know, don't have it. Don't make the standard be 90% there. Make the standard be 65% there, 70% there. Um, because the thing will only get better with your commitment. Because one, 
on the outside level, like the thing itself, it will open itself up to you the more committed you are. If you really dive into the friendship or the group or the relationship or the cause, it will reveal more of itself to you once you become a part of it. You'll learn more by going to all the weekly meetings, by developing trust with a person or a group of people that will reveal more of themselves to you. Yeah. But it's not just the outside thing that, that hooks you in. You change and the way you process it change when you commit to something. So um, there's this idea out of Harvard uh, psychologist Daniel Gilbert. He popularized this idea. Yeah. Um, I don't know if he came up with it, but I think he popularized it called the psychological immune system, yeah. which says that our mind adjusts to whatever we feel is what we're stuck doing. So, you know, if you win the lottery, your mind adjusts to being someone who's right. much richer. If you have a horrible thing happen and you lose mobility, your mind adjusts to being someone who has that right. disability. Um, and the same happens with commitments. If you get married to someone, your mind adjusts to being, I'm the spouse of this person, or I'm now a father, or I'm now part of this religion, or I'm now part of this cause. But that psychological immune system our ability to really adapt to things, yeah. to adjust to things, only kicks in if we feel that there's not much, you know, it's hard to go back. It doesn't need to be like no going yeah. back. You don't need to like sign a billion year blood oath. <laughs> it just post all over social media. This is what I'm doing and I'm never gonna I'm never gonna quit. <laughs> yeah, but even just like a light post on social media could help, you know, say, hey, I'm doing this Trying now. This Look at me. I'm, I'm part Has of anyone this. Else done this. That is a bit of burning the ships behind yeah, you and, yeah. and uh, making this uh, what you are. And that will let your kind of adaptability but kick you're just in. You're publicly because, committing to something, even if it's just a yes. small, you know, commitment. Um, it does, you don't have to sign a huge contract that says I'm going to do this for the next 50 years. That's why we have these ceremonies of commitment. That's why we have, you know, oaths of office. Yeah. That's why we have weddings. That's that's why we have housewarming parties. Yeah. It's that's why you have launch parties for some, like a project. Mm. You know, it's it's there to let everyone know I'm doing this and add a little bit of imprint on your identity of your commitment. Yeah, it makes it that much harder to go back on your word or whatever. And thus your mind turns off. You know, you have part of your mind that's always analyzing things. Is this good or yeah. bad? Should I do something else? Should I find something else? Then you have another part of your mind that's like adjusting to things. So when you're dating, you're assessing, you have like your assessing mind on a right. lot. You know, is this person right for me or not? You know, is this or do I like this other person better? But when you're married or you're even like in a committed relationship, your mind says, oh, I'm in this. I don't need to constantly assess, is this the right partner for me? Yeah. Instead, you free up your mind to assess how do we work together? How do we resolve differences? How do we reconcile issues? Um, and that's part of the joy of commitment too because that allows that other part of your mind to kick in and turn off the kind of anxiety assessment part of your mind. There is a famous quote from Shakespeare that you have in here on page 65. Some are born great, some achieve greatness, and some have greatness thrust upon them. And I think many of us are just waiting to have greatness thrust upon us. And we're ready as soon as, as soon as it, as soon as that thrust happens, we are just going to be right there to jump all over it. But 
what you kind of point out in this book is that's a little bit of a misperception. The idea of greatness being thrust upon us is, um, it's like that saying that it takes 10 years to become an overnight success. <laughs> um, right? Like, greatness is thrust upon you um, because you put in the time to um, get yourself to the point where you're able to take advantage of whatever the opportunity is. That was years of work to, um, you know, if you have this great example of Martin Luther King in here and, you know, he didn't just get up there and give the one speech. We remember him because he gave up there and said, hey, 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 I have a dream. Um, and we think about Martin Luther King as this guy who gave a speech and um, really helped change things. But that is not really the full story. Yeah, I call it in the book, um, Holly, the difference between long haul heroism and Hollywood dragons. Yeah. So, you know, the Hollywood story of heroism is greatness is thrust upon you. There's some big, brave moment. You become the knight right. that slays the dragon right. that appears. And, you know, there's some moment where you have to give up and stand up and give the perfect speech, or you have to put your arm around the kid and tell him it's okay to cry, or you have to stand with the, the jukebox over your head and outside of your love's house, or you have to tell the person in the store, you know, stop being a bigot, you know, I'm kicking you out of the store. And that's your moment where you're the local hero and local news does a story on you. Those moments, Hollywood likes talking about them because they're cinematic. You can fit them into a scene. There's drama to them. Right. It's exciting to watch in a movie. But in life, we're rarely offered big, brave moments. Right. You know, it's important when you are offered one to be brave, you know, have hey, the moment where someone's in the burning way. building run in and save them. But that's not our day-to-day -day life. So it's not really good moral guidance to say, wait around for the big, brave moment and make sure you're ready to be a hero when that time comes. And, you know, would you be ready for it when it comes, I think, is is critical. Because if you were a fireman <laughs> or if you had trained uh, running into burning buildings before and practiced that, um, then you'd be really able to do that when you saw one on fire. But if you just were an well, average yeah, that's citizen, a great point. you saw a burning house... It might not be a great even idea. All, even, <laughs> even the Hollywood heroes um, have to, often are long haul people behind them. But yeah. the the point, I guess, is that we are often not presented extraordinary moments. We're presented ordinary moments in an endless stream. Every day we wake up and we have to decide what we want to do with our life. And we have to decide, you know, it's a stream of little ordinary moments, not extraordinary moments. So what do long haul heroes do? They're not cinematic dragon slayers, Hollywood dragon slayers. What they do is they become the extraordinary moments themselves. And the way they do it is through the long haul, day in, day out, week in, week out, year in, year out work of advancing a cause, healing an institution, building an idea into reality, accompanying people in a relationship, loving a place and participating in a community by going to the weekly meetings. That is what long haul heroes do. And I think our message to kids about heroism and teens is less like, oh, you know, are you going to have your alpha big brave moment? The other one is, why don't you make a commitment to a particular thing and become a long haul hero? Why don't you um, find a person that you want to be there for? Why don't you find a community that you want to take a part in? Why don't you steward an institution and pass it along and keep keep watch over it? Why don't you advance a cause? Why don't you master a craft and join a community of practitioners in a craft? 
and spread the joys of that craft to more people in more ways. Um, that's the challenge of long haul heroism. And I think that there's kind of a, there's a notion that when we do that, then that is going to limit us. And we're then, like you say, we have this, we like these open options. We liked feeling like the world is our oyster and um, we haven't boxed ourselves in. But you have an interesting story in here about this guy, Max Pollock, who founded this organization that um, they salvage and resell bricks and wood. But he started out in law school, and <laughs> one day he just was walking around Philadelphia. He saw some guys fixing up an old house and said, man, I don't want to be in law school anymore. And then he quit and went off into this thing that now he's doing that's really cool. And you make an interesting point that quitting isn't necessarily inimical to this uh, commitment, you know. In order to be a long-haul hero, it doesn't mean that we can't ever quit anything or that we're signing up for something and we can never stop. Yeah, you know, it's that is a real thing I wanted to underline with this book, which was that this is not a book that says never quit. Yeah. It's not a dogmatic book like that. It's more about, it's less aimed at even, it's not even aimed at people that are, you know, 10 years into a long haul and it's extra encouragement to not quit. It's mostly aimed at people stuck in the hallway of life or on the menu yep. screen of life who have never embarked on a long haul in the first yeah. place. And in that chapter, I talk about Max Pollock. I, I'm talking about the, the steps it takes to, uh, to commit to something. And what I say the first step is, is actually to lower the stakes of your commitment, mm -hmm. to know that in the end, it's still possible to quit. And I wanted to show that by showing a positive story of quitting, which was a guy quit to make room in his life. He quit law school to make room in his life for um, a commitment to this design and build firm that he's, or salvage firm he started called Brick and Board that salvages old wood and bricks in Baltimore and helps people get started in the trade of design and build. And the two lessons of that is, you know, one, look, I'm not saying, you know, quitting isn't bad. Quitting can lead to good things. And two, it's about that. But the goal is not to just quit and quit and quit. It's to find your thing eventually and really dive in. Hey, we're here with Pete Davis talking about how to raise teens who are dedicated to something bigger than themselves. And we're not done yet. Here's a look at what's coming up in the second half of the show. And what they say in Ignatian Discernment is you shouldn't necessarily just analyze your options. You should analyze yourself when presented with the possibility of those options. We are not a static and isolated self. We're an embedded and dynamic self. We emerge through our commitments. Our identity is formed by what we attach to. Our reputation is burnished by what we attach to. It's not about what I call the cult of smart yeah. or what C.S. Lewis called the inner ring. You know, the idea that there's always an inner ring, more inner, more inner that you're trying to get to. And that's when you're going to achieve status. But the thing is, what C.S. Lewis says is... Uh, 
there's no inner ring where you're eventually happy. And what Obama once said was the times when I had the most psychodrama was the times when I was thinking about status. The times when I felt the most at peace and the most purposeful is the times when I was thinking about the work. Bill Clinton was once asked at the end of his presidency uh, how he felt. And he said, uh, oh, gosh, you know, I'm not going to be one of the best presidents or something, you know, because uh, I never had a war. I, I believe is the quote. <laughs> I don't know the exact quote, but it was something like this. And. What was so funny to me about that quote is talk about inner ringing. You go all the way in your whole life and you get to the innermost ring, you know, being in the Oval Office. And at the end of it, you feel like, oh, gosh, well, I'm not, you know, Lincoln or yeah, Washington. Right. So so I, I'm a failure. <laughs> I feel a little bit of melancholy. But it's such a good lesson because inner ringing leads nowhere. You could be president and still be unsatisfied yeah. and sad about having not made it to the inner ring. What gets you off this treadmill? What gets you off the, am I the smartest? Am I the best? Am I the highest status? Am I the most inside? Real substantial work. Forget about yourself and advance the cause. Take care of the people that you're committed to. Participate and deepen and love the community you're part of. Steward the institution. Build the idea. That stuff has clear paths. It's also not going to solve all your problems. <laughs> you, know, you know, it's like if you build the idea or stir the cause or take care of the person, you'll still feel some uncertainty, but it's going to lead to a lot more impact, a lot more purpose, a lot more community and a lot more joy than just worrying about yourself and where you stand and being in the rat race of trying to be at the smartest, most prestigious, most status centered person in the room. Want to hear the full interview? Sign up for a subscription today. You get access to all the interviews I've conducted, as well as new episodes weeks before the general public. It's completely affordable, and your subscription helps support the work we do here at Talking to Teens. Thanks for listening.